0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors, anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today we go beyond the surface with John Scott Rattan. John Scott is a friend of mine. He's someone I've known for a while now. Uh, We first met when he was a golf coach at University of Maryland, he also served as a golf coach at University of Virginia before heading to Bethesda Country Club where he worked as a teaching professional. He now works at Congressional Country Club as a teaching professional as well. John Scott is an interesting journey and he'll talk about his experience playing at an elite level collegiately at University of Tennessee and then also making the transition to go and play professionally for four seasons as well. John Scott is a really interesting guy. Uh, his background, his family. You'll hear about his upbringing and how that has shaped his mindset and his mentality. John Scott is a meticulous guy. He's a worker. And I think you'll hear his passion for instruction, his passion for teaching, for coaching come across in our conversation. He has a lot of mantras that has helped shape his mindset and his mentality. And John Scott is someone who really believes in the holistic approach. We have collaborated many times in working with clients where he works on the technical side, I work on the mental side. And then we also talk about what that human needs to be at their best. So he is someone who's very collaborative. He is very innovative in what he does. He's big into assessment and goal setting, as he'll talk about in our conversation today. And he's just a really quality coach. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as we go beyond the surface with John Scott Rattan. So John Scott, why don't you start? If you could just give us a sense of your background, your upbringing. I know you grew up in Maryland, but tell me about your upbringing, family, and Siblings and all that good stuff. I grew
1: up in, in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It's just north of uh, D.C. I have one older brother. And, um, you know, my, my dad taught at the high school I went to, Watkinsville High School up in Gaithersburg or Germantown. And then um, he was a golfer. Uh, my brother was a golfer. And then, you know, my mom didn't play.
0: Um, how much older is your brother?
1: Two years older. Okay. Yeah. So I um, grew up, you know, playing on weekends with my my, my dad and my brother and my buddies.
0: And kind of that's how I got my start through golf. And where would you guys play? Montgomery Country Club. Okay, it was
1: kind of like you know you could drop the kids off at eight a.m. and then you know in, in the summer and let them play all day, and that was kind of like my daycare.
0: And dad, how did he get into golf? What's the background there? You know he he didn't he was an only child.
1: My dad was an only child, so he played. That was his kind of like get out. That was his. You know, reckless So it was his his sport to, you know, that was his his best friend was golf probably growing up. And then uh, my parents actually met at a golf course. You know, my mom was working at the course when the, my parents met. But, yeah, he got in through his dad. He played a little bit up in Baltimore.
0: And mom stayed at home with you guys, or was she working? She
1: was working. Yeah, yeah. She, no, she worked. She worked, uh, gosh, yeah, definitely a working feeling. My dad's a teacher. My mom worked for a bank for 30 years. Got up and drove, you know, took that hour trip to the metro every day downtown.
0: Great. And... Other sports growing up, or just I baseball?
1: I, was, um, I played baseball up until my junior year of high school. I quit my junior year of high
0: school. Baseball swing messing up the golf swing? No,
1: like baseball was my first love. I grew up thinking I was going to be a You know, I was. You know, base, baseball was definitely my first love. I played that way more than I played golf. What up. position? I was second base.
0: And why'd you quit?
1: Um, he, he stopped growing. <laughs> stopped growing. Five foot eight's not going very. You know, you kind of. I, I was actually, um, that's actually a good story, I, American Legion Baseball. Are you familiar with Legion Baseball? Yeah. So I made varsity as a freshman at, at Watkinsville. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to do that. And you try out for Legion in the summer so you can play summer travel baseball. It's a pretty intense schedule, like 60 games in 40 days or something like that. It's pretty intense. And it got down to the point where I made it through a couple of the cuts in Legion Baseball, and I was the last guy cut, one of the last guys cut. And I was heartbroken. Like, I had never been... Said you're not good enough to do this, and he said, "Look, you're young. You can come back. You got three more years to play." And I was like, "No." I, I felt pretty bad about it. And at that point, I think I just put all my energy into golf. I had never been cut before. I'd never been, you know, had that feeling. So I said, "You know, nope, I'm not going to get cut from golf because someone else's opinion. It's either I played well or I didn't." And I kind of wanted that type of feedback. I guess it's up
0: to me or not. So the control and being yeah. able to control your own destiny. Yeah. Uh, and then baseball, like I think of as like one of the least controlling of destinies sports, because Absolutely. you literally are standing in the batter's box, and the guy's yeah. throwing at you whatever he wants to throw at you. Yes, you're playing second base, yeah. and you might not get a ball the entire game. Yeah. So, can you talk about why that was your first love and why you loved baseball? What did you love about it?
1: I think I it's again I'll go back to Cal Ripken like a model as I liked how he carried himself. He showed up to work every day. He worked hard. Um, it wasn't about Cal Ripken all the time. It was about The team, whether he played injured, it was about we, not me. And I appreciated how he did that. So I think it was more about him than, you know, the game.
0: It's interesting because I grew up with Cal Ripken as well. And we grew up in Montgomery Mm -hmm. County, which is Washington, D.C. suburbs. Mm -hmm. But D.C. didn't have a baseball team. So we grew up with Ripken in – He was it. He was the guy. He was the guy. And you think about what he was able to do, and you look at that record – When he when he broke that record, they said this was the record that would never be broken. Mm -hmm. And here was Cal Ripken in the in the Mm nineties breaking that record. And I think we can sit here today and say that record will never be broken because of what we know medically now and the idea of rest and giving guys days off. I mean, you know, I followed watching nationals. Bryce Harper, they're giving them days off. They want them to take days off, and he he probably doesn't want to, but they're like forcing them. And you watch the NBA, and you know, guys are taking off the second night of back to backs. Um, you you mentioned work ethic a few times Uh, you mentioned it with your family you mentioned like Cal Ripken what were your thoughts growing up watching someone like Cal and and how did that impact you or how does that impact you today
1: Um, I think it goes back to like I wasn't always the best at what I did I wasn't the the fastest baseball player I wasn't the smartest kid in school but my, my parents instilled in me something like smart is what you get not what you are Mm-hmm. So I came up with like, look, if, if I'm not the best at this, I can get better at it. Um, so whether it's like math is really, was really tough for me or whether certain things are really hard. I kept, I had the mind, they instilled a mindset in me. Like if you work harder at it and you, you do the right things and you show up, you can get better at it.
0: So, that is, I've never heard that yeah. before. So that was a mantra that you yeah, like
1: I heard that a lot growing up. It's like, I would complain, I'd come home, complain, man, I can't do this math problem. like, I'm not good enough. Like good is what you get, not what you are. Wow. So yeah, so that's
0: kind growth. Of, it's growth mindset, hundred
1: percent. And so I like when I look at Cal Ripken, I see that right in him. It's like he just did. He compiled statistics, you know. Maybe, but but it wasn't about that. It was more about look. This is what I'm going to do every day. This is what I'm about. That was his manifesto.
0: The thing about Cal that I think is so amazing—I mean, here's this big, strong guy. Dad was a ball player, brother was a ball player. They, t- talent is in that family. Oh, Yeah, he was blessed with the most of it, right? The body, yeah, the, the no athleticism. One else in that family, six, four. No, but to your point, he probably had the most pride in the work that he put in, the ability to be a pro and show up every day. And I would say, greatness usually will occur when talent works as if it's not. Absolutely. So when talent works as if it's not talented. And I look at someone like Cal and it's like that guy did have talent. Let's not, you know, good is what he was 100%. But he acted like that was something he could give, not who he was. Humble. With it. He was. humble, with humble. It. Absolutely. And so it's just interesting that both of us grew up with someone like that yeah. and I wonder You do wonder how what that message is that you know what you're going to take a day off and how that trickles down. Uh you do have to wonder about that and you know, I'm someone who definitely believes in taking time off and going on vacation and, and getting rest. Uh, but there's also there's that push pull of also no. Sometimes you just need to go to work and just yeah. you know forget how you're feeling, forget how hurt you are, and you just got to put the work in. And I think sometimes we fall into believing that feelings and thoughts drive action rather than letting your action drive your feelings no, I, and thoughts. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So you're a junior in high school. You stop playing baseball. Walk me through what golf was like in this area for a high school kid. Like, where are you playing? What are you playing? How are you playing? How do you get noticed by colleges back then? Walk me through that you know,
1: process. I, I guess as a junior in high school, high school golf in Montgomery County, well, high school golf in general, in the, like that school-affiliated golf. It's not that big of a deal. It's more of the summer golf, and it's the, it's AJGA or the Bobby Bowers, the Bobby Gorin, or it's local golf like that uh, that's more – what you would be playing in the high school golf is um i mean it's good but it's more of a club competition part so you know i'm playing and i'm traveling to different ajga tournaments back then there was one ajga a week now there's five or six so it's a different you have to send your resume in and it's a different like hierarchy of hey, in. but i'm playing the ajga um i'm having some success in tournaments um working hard playing at montgomery country club and you know doing it that way
0: are you working with a specific instructor there
1: I started as a junior in high school. I started with Bob Dolan at Columbia Country
0: Club. Okay, and so your dad taught at Watkins Mill. Mm-hmm. So what was it like having him in the school with you? Um, and what did he teach? He
1: what- taught history. He taught U.S. history. Um, I never took his class. My brother took his class. I didn't. I couldn't do it. <laughs>
0: Wait, time out. So your brother took his class. Oh, yeah. took what his did your brother get
1: in that class? You know, I think he made a B.
0: <laughs> that seems like the yeah. solid way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. No, I didn't. I couldn't. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't. You have
0: friends class? who were in his class. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like,
1: oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So interesting dynamic a yeah. little bit.
1: Yeah. No, it was interesting. You couldn't get away with much, yeah. you know, but you always had if You needed a couple bucks for like something at lunch. A you, soda. You you're knew good. where to go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So you're junior in, in high school. Are you starting to have some success golf wise? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a couple good tournaments where you shoot under par. Um, I think the college,
1: college recruiting at that, Point it's way different than it is now. Like not as many people did recruit, and it's harder to get noticed. But um, in general, they would look at your capability whether you could shoot sixty-seven or sixty-eight, rather than a consistency whether seventy-three or seventy-four.
0: So they're I, just looking for six numbers.
1: Yeah, they want something to, to show the ability of growth. And um, I had a couple good rounds, a couple of good scores, so I got noticed a little bit. Um, my dad went to Maryland, so I really, I think my heart was set on going to Maryland. Um, they had a coach there that didn't really recruit that much. Um, so I wanted to go there. I had a couple of visits there. Um, my heart was set on that, but it didn't work out.
0: So where did you end up going?
1: Uh, I ended up taking a scholarship my first year to James Madison mm-hmm. and we had a really good recruiting class, um, at JMU. And the first year I was there, um, title nine came through and they were going to cut six or seven sports. So the golf team was essentially a club team after mm-hmm. that. And so when that happened, they released every, um, student on the golf team, if they wanted to transfer, they would have given them a, like a release to transfer. They wouldn't block it. And they could explore their options. So I explored the options to the schools that recruited me in the past. And it was five or six schools. I took on visits there and um, I was fortunate enough to end up at Tennessee. It's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm probably one of the, the, the few uh, people. Title IX was one of the best things that ever happened to me.
0: That's wild. So after freshman year, you transfer over to Tennessee. Transfer to Tennessee.
1: Yep. Did you have a
0: good freshman year at James Madison?
1: It was okay. I mean, I played every event. I, you know, probably shot around mid seventy four was my average. Um, I was, I was, that was good. I, I always had a really good swing. I always had good, really good technique. So I think when you saw me as a recruit, I think, wow, like, like maybe the, um, the, the body of the car looked better than the engine, maybe. Um, so I think I did. When I was recruited as in high school by Tennessee, it was more of this guy's got a really good swing. Like you have to come in in red shirt, and I wanted to play, so that's why I went. I wanted to play right away.
0: So they basically got a red shirt in you. You got it anyway. So now you're a year older. You got it. So you go off to Tennessee, completely different environment, completely different athletics. Uh, What was that transition like going from James Madison to Tennessee?
1: Uh, Again, you hit the nail on the head. It's such a bigger operation. I mean I remember going to my first Tennessee football game and it's like you got hundred and five thousand people and it's it's a totally different experience. And then from golf, when you're qualifying for your first tournament and you shoot two or three over for eight rounds and you feel like you played pretty good and you lose by fifteen. Like, wow, I gotta get better you know, and you're coming in with a kid named David Skins who is the best golfer in England. He just won the the uh British boys junior and he's living in the suite next to you and you got um Andrew Pratt was an all SEC player and he's living above you. And you got these guys that are like, wow, these guys are really good.
0: Uh, At that point in your life, are you, are you dreaming of playing on tour? absolutely. Yeah. So that, so that transition at that point, it makes a lot of sense for you. I could either play club golf or I can go and try to compete and get better. And you knew that that was going to be the best place for you to try to develop.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it, and at JMU, like they, I loved it there. I met some of the best friends I've had in my life there and, you know, they ended up funding the golf program and it working out great there. And um, for me at the time, I think it was a really good opportunity and, you know, it was one of the best things that I think has ever happened to me.
0: So you're at Tennessee with these elite golfers. Yeah. Um, and is that the first time in your life where you are at the bottom of the totem pole uh, when it comes to comp- competing or? No, I
1: wouldn't say that. Like I, I
0: just,
1: yeah, I mean, maybe you could say that. Maybe you could say, like, yeah, I definitely wasn't the best one there. I definitely wasn't playing
0: right away. Well, I, I go back to high school where baseball, you reach a Big, certain level, yeah, and you're like, all right, you know what? I'm not – I I'm I'm, I just see the writing on the wall here. I'm going to move on to something where maybe I can excel. Uh, and now you're at Tennessee, and you're looking around, and you're shooting, you know, 72, 73, 74, and these guys are going low. Yeah. Uh, did you have any trouble with that? No, uh, I think –
1: I don't think there were, I didn't really have trouble with that. It was more like golf is an interesting game like that. Cause you could shoot 68 one day and 77 the other day, but you think of the 60, you know, some, if you, you can kind of choose what
0: you're thinking. And, you get a taste of it. Yeah. And I think I
1: looked at it. I looked at it differently. I, I looked at it like I can be as good as these people. They don't do anything different than me. I think I looked at it that way.
0: Beautiful. So talk about your experience there. How did I you do it?
1: I, I did well. I was, I made the SEC team my junior year. So that was probably my best year. Um I loved it. We made NCAA's the final NCAA finals two of the three years I played, we made regionals every year. I mean, it was a great experience. Um, um couldn't have asked for a better experience. There.
0: Any idea why your mindset was that notion of like I can do what these guys can do. Uh let's let's make it happen because some people might have said I don't really belong here. Like they didn't they didn't really want me the first time. They wanted me to redshirt yeah you know, however you look, but it sounds like you took sort of an optimistic approach to it. Any idea where that comes from? Is that I,
1: again, I think it becomes, it comes from good is what you get, not what you are. And I think it comes from me just like, I knew I wanted to play golf. I knew I was in love with getting better at it. I was obsessed by that process. And if I just did that every day over time. You know, And I showed signs of improvement too. Like if I, I'm sure if I didn't, if I shot 78 every day, like I'd be like, man, this is not worth it. But, um, I showed signs of playing well. And in the summer, like, you can play tournaments in the summer, and I did well in those. And then it gets you into this. I made the USAM. I think after my first year, I made the USAM. And then it got me exempt to a tournament. So then I didn't have to qualify for it. And I played well in the tournament. I finished the ninth. And that got me in another one. So it gave me a little bit of confidence to kind of keep going.
0: Now you're playing in big tournaments. And what's the mindset going into those tournaments? Can you just walk us through how you approached those tournaments and Were you someone who needed to be pumped up? Were you someone who needed to calm down? Uh, Were you someone who played fearless or, you know, played more smart? Like, walk us through your mentality. Definitely
1: the strength of my game was like a control strategy game. It wasn't a power game. It was um, much more of, all right, I'm going to plot my way around the golf course, limit my number of mistakes, eliminate double boogies, um, keep the ball in front of me, you know, hit a lot of greens, have a lot of two putts. I'm not going to make four or five birdies around. I'll make two or three birdies. You know two or three bogeys. Um, my good round will be 68, my bad round will be 74, 75. Um, so that's kind of how.
0: So, like, I would describe that as the consistent, yeah, conservative golfer, yeah, uh, yeah. which a lot of people say, like, that's what I want to be, but a lot of people cannot do that because yeah. they don't have it in them. Or I shouldn't say they don't have it in them, they don't really want to do that. Yeah. Like, they say they want to do that, and I don't know if you see this as, as a coach, and we're going to get into you as a coach or an instructor. But I think a lot of people say like I want to be consistent. They don't really because they want to go for it in two, yeah. and they want yeah. to try for the eagle, or they'd rather birdie and double than par par.
1: Consistency, I think, as a teacher, is when someone comes to me and says they want to be consistent. I'm like in my head, I'm like, well, no, you, no, you don't really. I, I don't want you to be consistent. I want you to shoot your best score ever, and then you know be inconsistent that way because you're doing better. I don't want you just to. Do this. You're already consistent. <laughs> so uh,
0: you're consistently
1: bad yeah bad right? not as good like, as i'm wanted. like you want
0: to be yeah. you want to be consistent go watch yeah. a, a high ending opera they're yeah. consistent like, you a can a...
1: slice every time, or something.
0: Like that. i just yeah. saw a movie Did you see the movie burnt i didn't so it's about a chef
1: and oh gordon ramsay right or
0: no it's uh what's the guy's name the sniper guy uh good looking guy bradley cooper okay oh yeah. oh yeah okay and so bradley cooper's in it but there's a scene in burnt where they're eating a burger king And there, he's like, Man, this burger is so good. And this, he's a he's like this superstar chef. And then he's talking to this woman who's gonna be his sous chef. And she's like, It's it's crap. And he's like, Well, no, it's so consistent. I always know what I'm getting at Burger King. It's the meat, sesame, bun, you know, it's so consistent. And she's like, Consistency is death. And they start having a conversation of what does it mean to cook, and that cooking is an art and it should be different every time Mm -hmm. and you should improvise and you should add these different flavor profiles because that's what makes it pop. And I think in an athlete, it's the same thing. It's like, I want to have consistency in my approach. I want consistency in mindset. Um, But I want consistency of swing, Mm -hmm. but the way I play requires some creativity. Mm -hmm. And there does come a time where if I'm just like, I'm going to do the same Exact shot golf. There's there's slope. There's you know different terrain. There's all kinds of things that causes you to be inconsistent. Like, and you just have to play it as it lies and come up with a solution. And I think people lose that in golf because no, outsiders no. think you just hit the same thing every time and the same thing every time. It's like no, like there is beauty in someone like Bubba Watson because of his creativity. And I'm not saying he's perfect. And I'm not saying he couldn't be better because you know, good is what you get. It's not who he is, but there is beauty in that notion of every game is going to be a little different and every performance is going to be a little different. And I I like that movie because there were just lines like that, that that resonate, right? Like consistency is death. Yet that C word is something every golfer comes to you to see, every golfer comes to me. They're like, I just want to be consistent. And for both of us, we're like, no, we are in the business of fulfilling potential, right? I, I and, just
1: I just had a, it's, it's funny, I just had a student in a, uh, in a lesson the other day. He's going to go off and play in college, and he comes, and we're doing a, like a year end goal setting session. How was your ball striking this year? And he goes, well, I want it to be more consistent. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, look, well, I want his good rounds to be better, and I want his bad rounds to be worse. And then when we go and practice his swing, and I have him hit a different shot every time, I'm not sitting there having him. To do like the same repetitive motion over and over and over again. And he didn't pick up on that. He never asked like, wait a minute, why aren't I just doing the same thing? Yeah, I'm like, well, that's just not how you get better.
0: So, And that's why like so many golfers would be like, I can hit it great on the range. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's a flat surface yeah. and you get to hit them over and over again. When do you ever play golf like that? And golf is one of the few sports, baseball can be like this because you can hit off of a tee and now you're facing a curveball and it's like, those are just not the same thing. Uh, but golf is one of those sports where, at least I see it, they make practice so much easier for you than when you're actually performing. Absolutely. And so people develop this mindset for practice that does not help them when they're performing. And I think of cooking in a similar sense. It's like, all right, now you're in a kitchen. You got to get food out. Yeah. Like you can't sit there and like There's perfectly – Yeah, you food. constantly just have to adapt. Let's grab this. Let's just make the food taste good. Yeah. And they just have to find how. They don't need to think about, well, why is it going this way? Why is it going that way? I always say when you're performing, it's about asking how can I do it, not asking why. When I'm preparing, yeah, I want to ask why. Well, why did I do this? Why did I do that? And in golf, especially, understanding the mechanics are, are massive. Like you have to understand why. When I'm performing, I need to ask, how can I get this ball there? Mm-hmm. And that requires inconsistency mm-hmm. in a way. We totally agree. So I, right, let's, let's continue on your journey. So you have some success in college. Yep. You have some success in Tennessee. Uh, what's the next step in your journey?
1: I played professional golf from 2005 till 2009. So and my,
0: where were you playing?
1: Um, I did, I did the US. I did U S tour school four times. I made it through first stage twice. Um, and then I did European tour school once. So I did five years of tour school and four years of, we'll call it, whether it's mini tour golf, I played web one web.com event, uh, but lots of, lots of mentor events. Um, had some success. Every year I got a little bit better. Um, so I was self-sufficient enough from a money standpoint, a sponsor standpoint, to prove to myself, like, all right, you can give it another. You can give it another.
0: So you graduate from Tennessee. And this is something that I'm sure you have conversations with your athletes about. I have conversations with my athletes. It's like, to, to do it or not to do it. What was your mindset the day you graduate Tennessee uh, as far as – Going pro?
1: Um, I think it was twofold. It was number one, I wanted to make sure I lived with no regrets. So I wanted to make sure that if I wanted to do it, I wanted to do it now. I wanted to go do it like as in play professional golf. I wanted to do it now, and I wanted to go down swinging. I was going to give it my best shot, and I wasn't going to say at the end of it, man, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have tried it. And I'd rather know than not know, I guess. And then um, the second was I had to show myself, I had to prove to myself that I was I had the ability to do it, or I, like I did something to say, all right, that warranted, hey, look, you can you can go do this.
0: So on one side, there's this logical side, like, uh-huh. hey, we're not just doing this to just do it. We're doing this because there's actually some merit mm-hmm. to it. And then on the other side, there's this sort of stage in your life where let's go in. Let's go all in. Yeah. Let's push the chips in. But on one side, there's logic. On the other side, there's chips are in, yeah. all in. How do you balance those two as you're performing?
1: It's really hard. You know, when you struggle, you, this logic guy comes out and he's saying, see, you know, you're, are you good enough to do this? Are you, you know, and then the dreamer comes out, well, this is your dream. You know, and then you hear stories of, you know, guys that are, have tried Q school 15 times and they get through and then they're like, is that going to be me? Like, and you don't know, you're, you can't connect the dots that way.
0: So it's a tough balance. Golf is, is probably the hardest at this because basketball, football, baseball, soccer they have drafts someone else decides and they you. tell you yeah. that you're Goal, not good yeah. enough yeah. and they could be wrong yeah. you could go to europe and go play and then come back or you could play in a minor yeah. leagues and it, but but yeah there's evaluations in golf no anyone yeah. I, if i wanted to i'd be like you know what i'm going pro and
1: and that's what's great about the game and it's also like what's it's great about professional golf and it's not great and it used to be better when the, the pga Tour school let you go to the pga tour because those are great stories they just, those guys weren't that successful when they got through, so they changed it. But that's what's somewhat great about the game. There are some great stories like that.
0: And I think of people that are undrafted in their sport. So, you know, if you're watching the Patriots, you're seeing undrafted guys everywhere. Like I watch a lot of basketball, and I, I watch guys like a Stephen Curry who went to Davidson, right, because Virginia Tech didn't want him, okay. even though his, or said he had to walk on at Virginia yep. Tech, even though his dad was a legend there. So let's just use Steph because everyone understands Steph. Steph needed to have a little narcissism in him to say, no, I'm awesome. Yeah, like, absolutely. I can play. And oh, by the way, when I come across half court, I can make this shot from anywhere. There's a little bit of narcissism that comes with that. Did you have a little of that or do you think you lacked a little of that? I lacked
1: a lot of it. I wouldn't say I lacked a little. I lacked a lot of it. I mean, most professional athletes, there's a lot of that in there, and there's a lot of this is about me, especially in golf. It's about me. And, you know, they, like they're pretty confident, uber confident. And that wasn't my
0: – that wasn't me. It's so interesting because what I find, even with pro athletes, when I work with pro athletes, they struggle with that. The, I think the elite ones, the great ones, they, they get that. They get that. I'm going to put the work in. I'm going to get mine. I'm, I'm going to use the word entitled, but not in the sense of like I'm entitled so I'm not going to put the work in they feel like I'm entitled because I did put the work in. Mm-hmm. Like I put that work in and I know I can play ball. Let's roll it out. And now like I'm, I'm going to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see that performance mindset. And then I, I have other pro athletes where I see them, we have to try to pull that out of them because they are team first or they are uh, someone who has a humble background in some sense or they put in all the work mm-hmm. and then they're like, well, why isn't it working? Because they don't understand – but their mindset needs to shift from that working mindset to that performance mindset. Yeah. I never was able to, Like you watch Lady Gaga at the halftime show. Like she's not coming on the halftime show and being like, guys, like I worked really hard for this. She's saying, I'm going to jump off the roof of (laughs) this and then I'm going to catch the ball. Like she's not saying like, Oh, maybe no. Like once she steps on that stage, she owns it. Owns it. And I saw her interviewed like, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she had a real humility to her. And I look at Beyonce, like you listen to Beyonce, she's very like yeah. quiet and almost introverted. But when she slips on the stage, it's Queen B, right? Mm-hmm. And I talk about this with my athletes all the time. It's like when you are performing, you need to have that I'm the shit or whatever you want to call no it. Bashfulness. There isn't you don't need it. But what we do need is the Cal Ripken. Work ethic, coming to preparation. But when Cal stepped on the field at shortstop or even third base, yeah, absolutely, I'm a man, I'm an Iron Man, Um, and so I think that dynamic is is so important. And and you're not alone. Like I think most of us understand that hard work matters. I shouldn't say that. A lot of people understand that hard work matters. I think the message that often gets lost is that all right, you worked hard. Now that you put the work in. Now I need you to understand that work doesn't entitle you to anything. It's just, it gives you an opportunity and now you need to go take it. And so I use that word entitlement because I think it's a tricky word because in some senses people go into that and become complacent. And then I think in other senses they use that work to say, no, now I'm grateful for this opportunity and now it's up to me. And I, I, I I embrace that idea.
1: I don't don't think I was ever able to get over that next step as far as All right, look. I thought I was just going to really work hard and and practice more. And like, what's the next thing to work on? What's the next thing to work on? Rather than all right, well, I've worked on this. Here's where I am. Like, like, go, go, put it to work. I kind of just kept in that same mindset, and that's why you stopped playing. I
0: think golfers really struggle with this because a great coach will put their players in situations where they have to compete and perform. Yeah. So. Like in soccer, they play seven on seven and they just play small sided, where they're, they're like, it's not, they're not running miles, but they're just constantly interacting. Or you see a basketball team, uh, they'll do something called the shell drill, where they have to constantly defend. Mm-hmm. Um, and in football, you know, they'll play, uh, you know, without pads and just throw. So I think other sports lend themselves, and the coaches will put them in situations where they have to compete and they have to perform. They have to develop that, that muscle, what I would call their like mental mm-hmm. muscle. Of, of competing and competing with confidence or whatever you want to call it. Whereas golf, yes, you might have a swing coach and yes, you might, that person might be really involved with you coaching, but most of the time you're working on your craft, it's going to be on your own. And there's just no way, I don't care. If you have your swing coach, you know, twice a week, you're still, that coach is going to give you um, ideas to make it competitive on your own and games and stuff like that. But it's still up to the player. To work on that mindset, yeah, and absolutely. It's just different, uh, and I think it's one of the challenges that definitely comes with golf.
1: And it comes with co- in coaching. It's really hard to put stress on your student. Like you, you're, you got to be able to, to put some type of stress on the student to help you know foster that.
0: So how do you do that? Because I know that's something that you try to do. Give me some ways that well, for for the amateur golfer that's listening to this, that's a weekend golfer. Give give us some ideas of how you try to implement that into your students.
1: Well. One would be knowing some of your personal best. If you're going to create an environment with that and you're practicing by yourself, like golf being an individual sport and you're on the range and you have an hour to practice, like you got to be able to say, all right, well, I, I, I'm going to set up a game and my best score for nine up and downs is 26 out of, you know, well, I'm going to try to be 25 this time or 24 and then 23. And then, um, or whether it's taking one, like Justin Thomas plays a game and he says he does it every week. He plays, has one ball and he plays, he goes through his routine and has every hole is a par two on on the uh, putting green, and he tries to beat his best score. And so he, they're inner competitive like that. So you got to create that. And It's hard. Like sometimes I'll set up group environments a lot with juniors. I'll set up group environments when they practice where um, where they compete against each other. And that's what a college setting does great for golf because <laughs> you're around eight, eight to ten kids that want to get better, and you're gonna practice, and you're in short game contests, and you're. Qualifying a lot, and it's a lot of competition. So you see a lot of improvement for kids in Cal in that four years, much different than high school because they're, there's not as direct. There's you know they go to the golf course in the summer and it's like, well, I'm just going to hang out. I'm just going to hit a couple. Of buttons. they feel like they're practicing, but they're really not getting much out of it.
0: There's two things I want to tug on. Number one, number one is the inefficiency of a yeah, lot of golfers, so. and like they will put more time in than the other athletes, you but a soccer player might go to practice for two hours and really get better. Whereas a golfer might spend 10 hours from sunrise to sunset and have not really done much. the second thing I would tug on is that the idea of team is human. And that idea you just talked about college golf is such a great place for them to develop because they get to work against or with some of their teammates they get to see things that their teammates might be doing and compete against their teammates. And I think that competitiveness is human. Uh, I think genetically um, or historically, we had to compete for food. We had to compete, no, you know, to live and survive. And I think there is a part of us that is wired to compete um, with others. And uh, when you when you don't tug on that, when you don't pull on that, I'm not sure we can bring out our best. That's why I golf. I mean, that's why I think the Ryder Cup is great. is. You listen to golfers; they'll all say, "Yeah, Augusta is amazing. We love Augusta," but the excitement that they have for the Ryder Cup is next level because there's an element of competitiveness, but there's also this element of being part of a tribe or Mm -hmm. uh, camaraderie. You even heard it at the Olympics uh, with golf just entering the Olympics and the guys that went being like, this is awesome because now they feel like they have a team. They feel like they have an organization uh, behind them. They feel like they're representing something bigger than themselves. And I just think that's when you go back to baseball – it sounds like you love that about baseball. Mm-hmm. This notion of being part of something bigger yeah, than yeah. you, and when you combine that with the toughness that it takes to be on an island and have a spotlight on you that golf forces you to do, like I had another athlete tell me, they're like, "What I love about golf is like there are no excuses." Like you said, no regrets. Like I'm going to go at this with no yeah. regrets. Like at the end of the day, there is no excuse. There is no evaluator saying you're this or that. It's just your score. Yeah. So when you combine the the sort of spotlight with the team it's a beautiful thing and that's why i imagine college golf is a is a special
1: it absolutely is and i I tell my student most i tell them every day how can not how can i get better today it's how can i challenge myself today that's an important question to ask because it changes the what you practice it changes all right look well i'm just going to go and hit balls for a couple minutes or hit till i feel good that's what most golfers do they go to the range and they say, i'm going to hit till i feel good about it To be fair, like you you give anyone with some athletic ability and some experience playing, they're going to hit, you get 20 balls, you're going to find a couple that you hit pretty good. But then how are you going to narrow that in? You got to create bandwidth on the course. You got to kind of sharpen the knife a little bit. So like that's the challenge in coaching sometimes is how to challenge that um, mindset and create stress on the students so they do get better.
0: I love that. How can I challenge myself today rather than how can I get better today? Because better is something that, we can all believe. It. Oh yeah, I put the work in. I got better today. Yeah. But challenge, that man, that's awesome. I love that. So you're challenging yourself. You're playing pro golf. Mm-hmm. And at what point is it? You know what? I I need to just well, hang it up. I'm at.
1: I can tell you. I, I can tell you the spot, and I can probably tell you the day. It was October in 2008, and I'm at Second Stage of, stage of Tour School in the Woodlands in Texas. and I didn't bring a caddy to the tournament. I couldn't afford to bring a caddy. You're at second stage tours. But it might, back then, it might as well have been a tour, a, a tour event. It was Steve Stricker's there. You got some pretty good players. Steve Stricker didn't get through. And um, I'm in that event. And I played okay. I shot probably a 75, 72, 75, something like, something around that. But I didn't have a caddy. Everyone else has a tour caddy, tour bag. I got there like the day before the event, played one practice round. And you know, I was like, man, this, this is this is too big, a little too big, too much golf course for me. It was pretty long i didn't hit it that far and i was like i'm just you just know you kind of get the feeling of man like i there's no i'm playing okay here and i'm missing this by 15 shots like not i'm not close it's not as close as i think i was good enough to to get to this level by like probably more grit than it was talent to be fair and like the next step's like it's just not there
0: was that a realization or is that a process that led it to It was that?
1: more of a realization. Like when you go to that turn, I mean, it was my second time through getting to the second stage. And, and it was like I was – you can just feel like the – the incompet, I can still feel the incompetence of, man, I just – I'm not as good as these guys, you know.
0: Just, In some sense, it's kind of like baseball junior year. like. Yeah. You know, it's different because someone else told you that. But you got to that level and you just said.
1: And looking back on it now, I remember playing my final round. and playing with a guy named Scott Brown. You probably don't know Scott Brown's name, but Scott's on tour now. He's been on tour the last five or six years. And we're, gosh, we're almost in, we're in the bottom, you know, six players in that event. And I'm telling myself, man, I'm just not good enough. And Scott's probably telling himself, if I could just do this. And, like, he had a way different mindset than I Scott probably – that's why he's successful. And I'm like, you know, maybe I need to get a job. And I, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And I'm thinking.
0: Do you remember what Scott's mindset was? Do you have any insight into that?
1: I mean, I had played with Scott a lot before, but he was way more confident than I was mm-hmm. on a week-to-week basis. Um, we played mini tours of golf together. And, you know, Scott, I would tell you, Scott is one of the best ball strikers I've ever seen. He's awesome at hitting it. And he would probably say, you know, John Scott's one of the best swings. or, And I wouldn't agree with him. So two totally different mindsets and going going
0: at it. Where do you where? How do you grab your hands hands around confidence? Like, how do you look at confidence? What do you think about confidence?
1: What do I think about confidence? How do how do you
0: how do you build it? How do you get it? I mean,
1: at certain again, like working with junior golfers, like depending on their age and where they are in their life, you always try to instill some type of that with them. That's something like I try to do to a lot of my students in that um, when they walk out of a lesson, I want them to walk out with their chest high and feel like they can take on anyone because that's a powerful feeling rather than them feeling incompetent. And you try to instill that where it becomes more innate for them than having to work on confidence. If that
0: Beautiful. So you hit, said incompetence now a, a couple of yeah. times and like you're felt, you fell at that level that you were incompetent yeah. and therefore lacked confidence.
1: I was very much introspective on, analytical whether you can say perfectionist but maybe there was a little bit of that in there but i was much more of that than kind of letting things go and just flying by the seat of your pants and saying look i got this and, and going to play i was much more why why
0: why why structured yeah. routine Absolutely. so as i said every pro athlete that i've ever i've ever worked with has a little of that perfectionism That the the thing that you need to be able to do is shift away from that when you're performing Because that stuff's beautiful for you. Because if you're a perfectionist, you're going to challenge yourself. Like you said earlier, you're going to try to find a way. The issue is when you bring that to a golf course and you're competing against the best people in the world, it's not about being perfect. It's about finding a way. Like you said, not why, but now it's how. But to me, like confidence, I think a great coach will help build an athlete's confidence. But at the end of the day, the confidence lies with the athlete. So – to me, confidence works from the inside to the outside. So, uh, Absolutely. like, the athlete's ability when you say, that swing looks really great, and here's why, and here's the degree, and here's here's what it looks like. Then the athlete's ability, like you said, uh, what was the guy's name again when you were Scott, playing? Scott Brown. Yeah. yeah, so like you and Scott, let's just take you and Scott, not to say that this yeah. is exactly yeah. what happens, but – you might be sitting there being like, like you said, like, you know what? I'm done. Like, I'm just not good enough to play at this level. That's how you interpret it. That's how you're exactly. talking to yourself. Whereas Scott might sit there and be like, oh, I'm right there. Like, all right, I just need to fix these couple things. And I already have the distance. And now I just need to work nonstop on my short game.
1: Scott's probably thinking if I shoot, I can shoot 29 on the back and still give it a run. And I'm
0: thinking, man, this is, this a- it was I narcissistic, mean, right? Absolutely. And by the way, there are plenty of narcissists who are probably 35 years old, still playing mini tour. Like it doesn't mean that that's going to lead to success, but if you don't have that at that stage to get there is going to be, it's going to be, you have to be unrealistic. You have to be a dreamer. You have to be like narcissistic in the sense of like, all right, yeah, I'm going to shoot a 29 or like, that's just going to happen. And that I just, I see that equation in my head and that is working from the inside out because it's the story we're telling ourselves. It's the dialogue we're telling ourselves. And so often, if we just listen to the outside world telling us what the story is going to be, we're screwed. Because the outside world is, is trained to say, don't go for it. We're risk averse. Human beings are risk averse. We don't want to go for things. But the best are risk takers. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say they're not risk takers while still laying up but they're risk takers to get to the point of laying up. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I just think confidence, one of the mistakes we often make as coaches is we say, it's our job to instill confidence into our athletes when the reality is it's their job to interpret the information you're giving so, them. And then, so how do you build that interpretation? So
1: in working with students, that's, those are great points I would make it, I would take that another level and say like the job, my job is to help the student become autonomous where they're able to self correct. Like, one of the the biggest differences I see in successful golfers or athletes, I mean, I'm working with golfers, but you probably see it in other aspects, um, is their ability to self-diagnose and correct sooner and make those adjustments. That comes from you're not making those decisions without being confident. So you're trying to instill in, in when you're teaching a lesson, like you're not giving a lot of feet, augmented feedback. You're selecting feedback and you're picking times where you can talk to them and it is teachable moments and You, you want to make sure that, well, in golf instruction, like people, you come to a lesson, you think you need to do work and work on your swing all the time, or you need to work on a skill, you need to work on on like technique or something like that. that's the, I think teachers have that type of mindset. Well, if you continually do that, you're not always building confidence because you're always changing. You're all, so it's okay to say, that looks great, let's go play, let's go test this, let's go, like, it's okay to do that for a couple of times. And I try to help my students become their their own coaches, and them to be able to self-diagnose, self-correct. That's confidence to me.
0: Here's what I love about that. So I agree with you. I think golf is different than other sports because they are on their own. Like they might have a caddy, but if you listen to caddies, caddies, their main job is just to ask questions throughout the course of the round. Hey, you know, you think think it's a seven iron here? Yep, seven iron. All right, let's go. It's just sort of that dialogue back and forth, but they're not coaching. Well, I would say, say yeah, right, no, right, right. The,
1: cat, the caddies, at, at, a, at a tour level, a great caddy, like, there's strategy involved, there's knowing the player, saying the right thing, there's a lot going on there. Like, the caddy would be, I would say the caddy's more involved than the golf coach would be at some level. I, I'm comparing
0: it to a basketball coach.
1: I mean, I, I, I'm, a caddy, like, I remember working for Sean Foley, and Sean, would, the way he would do his percentages and how he would get paid, it would be less than the caddy. The caddy's there, like for seven rounds, the caddies, and that's an, that's a that's the, a power.
0: But the one. dialogue between a caddy and a player versus a basketball coach and a basketball player, you think it's similar dialogue?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, like a coach might not be telling the caddy what to do, or or how to like, a, like a coach is not going to say. Caddy's not going to say, hey, Rory, you have to do this. A coach is going to come out and say, you have to run this play. Right. That's the difference. It's more of teamwork in a coaching – or, I mean, in a, in a in a golf setting where, hey, what do you think? And, and
0: it's going to come down to the player. I'm not devaluing the caddy. Yeah. Okay. I'm saying the caddy is different than the coach Absolutely. because yeah. the coach will say – He's more of a dictator. He's a dictator. Yeah. And a caddy, it's it's collaboration. And Oh, I, I completely yeah. see the value in the caddy. I don't think – you never see a – a player on tour without a caddy, yeah. like it's tremendously valuable because they know their hot, hot spots. They know what do they need to hear? How do they need to hear? Yeah. And by the way, a great coach, I think takes on a lot of the caddy yeah. role
1: Absolutely.
0: rather than the dictator role, yeah. but there still is a control factor that the coach, there's a power dynamic difference between a basketball coach and a caddy. But I will say this to your point, I think great coaches will take on more of that caddy role more often, like a Greg Popovich will say to Tony Parker, "Hey Tony, what are you seeing here?" Uh, I think they will have that, but there's also an element of "No, I'm the head coach. You need to trust me and have faith that I know what's best because I'm and, sitting in this chair." And
1: one of my favorite people on all golf is Cameron McCormick, and mm-hmm. he's Jordan Spieth's coach. Um, I think just think the world of Cam, and he told he told a story last week of when Jordan lost the like when he hit it in the water at the Masters on number twelve and. Like, what do you say to Jordan? Like, how do you, from Cameron's perspective as the coach, like, you put yourself in his shoes. Your, your player just, you know, had a five-shot lead in the Masters, went bogey, bogey, set, quad. Like, what do you say to him at the end? And he's walking off 18, like, pat him on the shoulder. you got to have something to talk to him about. And Cam talks about how he coached him through, look, you birdied 13, you birdied 15, and you looked out on 16. Like, you came, you put yourself right back and, and, and be proud of that. Like, that's coaching, and that's, how Jordan was able to bounce back and you know still maintain one of the, be able to be one of the best players in the world.
0: I love it. You know, as I hear you talk about the way you coach and the way you instruct, I think coaches in team sports would that would be so valuable for them to hear. Which is sometimes I don't need to give them everything. Sometimes I just need to figure out all right what's going to help them yeah. take a step and and being selective in my uh, teaching moments because I think other sports. The coach, because they just want to be honest, because a big part of coaching is honesty. And if a player thinks you're playing them and you're just telling them what you think they need to hear in in those team sports, it can be problematic because then the player is like, oh, he's just playing mind games with me. Like I've had pro athletes tell me, yeah, coach just plays mind games with me. And you never want to be at that place in a team sport. But where a coach would benefit from is hearing from a golf instructor like you, of hey, what is really important for them to hear? Because a lot of times it happens in team sports is they hear the coach so much, yep, yep, and it yep. doesn't. They don't. They don't value the feedback. And I've heard that from some some players where they're like, "Gosh, coach really picks and chooses when they deliver the message." So when they deliver it, I know that I, this is something I need to hear. And that's one of the reasons I love getting people like in your sport together with basketball coaches or soccer coaches, football coaches, because I think they can that usually they can benefit from going a little bit in the other direction. Yeah. And I think a golf coach could probably benefit from hearing from a basketball coach of like how do they look at feedback and how do they listen to it, which is really the whole idea of this podcast, which is let's bring a CEO, yeah. let's yeah. bring someone who's an actor, let's bring, you know, a coach, let's bring them all together and figure out what's their mindset and dig a little deeper to find out. How do we pull out the best in all of us for what we need?
1: Yeah, and, huh. and, and I think there's a couple of things I'll p- take piggyback on that with. There's a great book called Multipliers on how it brings people together rather than a dem- multiplier versus diminisher as a leader. And you, you, you play that role almost every day as a, as a golf coach. And then two is people don't know how much... You, or People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And so building that relationship and, and being... Not just giving information to give information. I think you got to make sure you think of that. I think we could all, as golf instructors, we're guilty of that sometimes. Absolutely.
0: Because you see a problem.
1: Yeah, and you want to get dive in, and you kind of learn to, you learn to get around that.
0: Well, coach's job is to get someone from yeah. where they are to where they want to go. Yeah. So I think coaches, and I'm no different. Like I think one of my biggest weaknesses is that if I see an issue yeah. that I think I have an answer to, I'm giving it to you. Yeah. That's why I'm different than a therapist because a therapist is going to – they're going to help you get there on your own. Yep. But it's not you. And and I just – I believe like I'm a coach because if I have an answer or a solution, I just feel like an obligation or a responsibility that, no, if I have something, I'm going to give it to you. Yep. Um, and you, know, you can run into trouble sometimes because you can give the wrong piece of advice. And where a golf instructor might say, hey, keep your elbow in. And that might now call them to just keep their elbow in and not be athletic yeah. with their swing. So there's always that risk involved. How do you balance taking those risks with, um, when he, knowing when to pull back? How do you balance those two as, as an instructor or a coach? Um,
1: like as far as giving like technique in the lesson or stuff yeah. like that, one is really knowing the player. You got to really know their, their mindset and, um, and it's history of your past lessons on what you've been trying to do. And then, um, Creating a goal setting session, like there's a lot more that goes into it than, hey, a guy shows up and this is what you do. it's like, what are the goals? What are we trying to get to? When's your next tournament? How much time are you going to practice? Like there's eight or nine different things that are going through your mind when you're trying to make that decision.
0: So that's the second time you've mentioned goals. Mm -hmm. And I know when I've had clients who've worked with you, one of the things that you do a little differently is you run them through this combine. You run them through like, hey, we are going to assess the hell out of you and really get a baseline of where you're at. And I think that's different than how maybe some other people in your field do. Maybe there's people that do the same, but um, I've heard that feedback from my clients. that And John Scott really puts you through the ringer and assesses you. So you do heavy assessment, heavy goal setting. What else would you say is part of your process that you need to have other than the technique and, and the stuff that every golf instructor does? Well, there's
1: um, there's so many facets to playing good golf and or being a like successful golfer and reaching those, and I want to make sure I'm on the same page with the student, and I want to see what they're willing to put in, I guess, to create it. Um, so I'll create like a roadmap, and and whether it's a SWOT analysis kind of deal, and then create like a plan for our like look, we'll create like an eight week plan, long term plan. Here's how we get there. Is if you need to see a trainer, do you need to get physically different to to reach your goals? You know, I had a young student the other day who wants to play. He's a freshman and he wants to play Division One golf and. You got a division one golf right now. You got to hit it 300. You got to hit it like distance is king up there. And uh, to get there, he's got to get a little stronger. And he's taking these steps to do it. And it's going to, without doing that analysis, like he's, again, no regrets. He's going to have regrets because he's he's not going to really fulfill his potential. So
0: I call it filling the buckets. You got it. Right. Checking all the boxes. Like there are three components to most sports there's physical, there's mental, and there's technique or skill or whatever you want to call it. And To me, the more physically strong and – let's just take it outside of our realm. The more physically strong the athlete is, the more likely they are going to be mentally strong and technique strong, right? Yeah. The better their technique is, then we can work from the technique and, and get it to be mental. Now, I think the more good you get at something, the more mental it becomes. Yeah. But um, it, you still need to fill the buckets. And by the way, there's really great golfers who might, have, might be low on a certain bucket. Like maybe their swing technique is a little low, but they have these other components or maybe their mental is low, but they're so gifted physically and technique wise. Yeah. And I think people see a John Daly and they're like, oh, well, I don't have to work out. And I'm like, well, what is he mentally and what's his technique like? There's different yeah. buckets and it's your job as an athlete, just like it's all of our jobs to fill the buckets. And
1: I'm trying at that point in the in the analysis of in creating a relationship with a student, I mean, it could be over one lesson, a week for five weeks. It could take a long time. And you're trying to figure out the student. I'm getting much better at figuring out like the uh, the personality of the student, what you can say, what he's going to do and how to challenge him. And, um, so you're really trying to figure that out most, to be fair. You're trying to, what can I do to help the student be prepared to play well in his next event or in six months or
0: who is the human. Yeah. And, and like for me in my field, look, I have had athletes who have failed. Oh, yeah. They have failed. like, I I don't care how you measure it. Like they failed at what what they're trying to do in their sport, but how I sleep at night is like I know they didn't feel, fail when it comes to human growth. And like what we work on is growing the human. And if we grow the human, I think it'll translate on in the on oh, the yeah. field or on the course, but it's not a simple equation. Like the more I work in sports, the more I realize like there is no simple equation to this. It's just grow the human, grow the body, grow the soul. Grow the mind, grow the technique, yeah. and I love what you said earlier. It's like forget about getting better. Let's just constantly challenge. Yeah. And so my job is when they come in here and we meet, it's like, hey, how can I challenge you? How can I challenge you? And you know, I think that's what a great coach does. And that's why people get into this: are you giving positive feedback or negative feedback? And I'm like, a coach's job isn't to be positive or negative. A coach's job is to challenge. Absolutely. And look, I love the Positive Coaching Alliance, and there's a commercial for the Positive Coaching Alliance at the Super Bowl. And they do great work, but this idea that all coaches should just be positive with their athletes all the time, I just—I I can't say that that's the case. I think all coaches need to be challenging their athletes to be the best version of themselves. Absolutely. And that is really valuable. And if we lose sight of that, we're going to be in trouble. Absolutely. And I think so. a great coach does that. All right, here's what I want to do with you. Um, I want to get your perspective as a coach. So I want you to just keep your coach's hat on, and we're going to do something that I call preferences. And the answers might have been different for you as a player, but I really want you to answer these as you think about them as a a coach. So as a coach, do you prefer preparation or performing?
1: Sorry, so for me or for the student, sorry? For you. And for you, it's a little different in your sport. So performing for me would be giving the actual instruction? Yeah, let's do that. So giving the
0: instruction or preparing for the instruction? What's more? Or, Which sorry. do you prefer?
1: I mean, definitely giving the instruction.
0: So the performance aspect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love giving in, being in the lesson and helping that way yeah, much much more than writing the lesson plan. Yes, yeah. if those are the differences.
0: But as an athlete, if I had asked you as a golfer, you probably would have prepared preferred the preparation. Love it,
1: absolutely. People and, ask me what I miss about playing because I play five ten times a year now. I say, no, actually, I miss preparing for the event. I miss the practice. That was my favorite part of it.
0: Yeah. Love it. And that's probably why you yeah. you work so well as a coach because your job, even though you're performing in a lesson, your job is actually preparing them to Correct. perform. Which I love, yeah. Makes yeah. so much sense. Do you prefer yes sir golfers or why golfers? Why golfers. Do you prefer a system or autonomy? Autonomy. So that goes back to that idea of I want them to know how to do it. And, and Yeah, and, I mean I definitely don't
1: teach the same thing to every person. They might have similar – Definitely don't teach the same thing every, every person.
0: Do you prefer perfection or progression? Progression. And is that something you would have answered the same way ten years ago, fifteen years ago?
1: Um, me as a player would have preferred perfection. Yeah.
0: So I think what's cool about you is it's interesting to hear how much you learned. Yeah. Oh yeah. From playing.
1: Man, as a player, I I didn't. Ha- I wish I knew what I. Knew. I wish I could be my coach now to myself as a player because there would have been way different avenues to to get.
0: I think that's why so many of the really successful coaches were not the greats of the greats. Absolutely. Because they had to figure out a different way of doing things. And they learned from those experiences that didn't necessarily go completely smoothly. And sometimes pain can be the best teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Do you prefer a resume or a eulogy? That's a good one. For yourself.
1: I'll say resume because eulogy means I wasn't here anymore, so okay. I'll take a resume.
0: The way I've looked at that question, and people look at it all kinds of different yeah. ways. When I ask it, the way I interpret it is the resume is what you do, the eulogy is who you are. And you said something earlier that just really stuck with me is like that that mantra that you grew up with, which is like getting good. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's a process, right? Like yeah. you're, that's not who you are; it's it's what you do. Right. And so, I think there's tremendous value in what you do. There's also value in what are my morals? What are my values? Who am I? I think a lot of athletes struggle with that because they think that their sport is who they are. Mm-hmm. But the example I always give is like, well, Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski were both tight ends for the New England Patriots—way different people. Way different people. Um, but what they did was very successful. Tight ends, same team, but who they were completely different people. And I think, I think if we focus on who we are i not necessarily looking at it from a good or bad. I think if we focus on who we are, like, I like to challenge myself. I am gritty. I compete. I work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, those are like values. Then what we do is get yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. I totally would agree. So I'm going to add to the mantra that yeah, you guys I like, have. I like it. Um, you prefer your generation or your parents' generation?
1: My parents' generation. Why? Um, I don't I – don't, my perception of it would be their – they're not. They were. They weren't afraid to work. Work hard. I feel like there's some right now. It's and it comes back to working hard. I guess it comes back to that work ethic thing. But um, everything's not going to be a nine to five, 40 hour work week. And they they figured out how to get it done in tough times. So they lived through whether it's Vietnam, they lived through you know different different struggles that are different than we face now.
0: You know, so there's I, some respect there. I'm not a big fan of like the generational stuff. But I do think they were actually better performers because a lot of the performance is about putting your head down and just making it happen. And I think when they went to work, they were at work, and they were present at work. Mm-hmm. When they came home, they were present at home. I think part of it is technology, right? Like we, we struggle with being present because we have a phone well, that has – instant gratification. For and, sure. And
1: I think they uh, – you know, I don't know. It's definitely an instant gratification – What have you done for me lately right now? And um, you see it in the media, you see it in all all facets. And I'm not saying like our generations. I mean, we have a great generation. We're lucky to be in this generation. I mean, everything's at our fingertips. Um, But, uh, you know, there's some respect for how they did things, the way they did it. I mean.
0: I think we're smarter as preparers now. Like, I think a kid's ability to go on a track man and learn about the swing and the knowledge that they learn or go on a YouTube and watch video of Jordan Spieth and his short game. Like we now have this knowledge and knowledge is power, but yeah, go ahead. I do think though, like think about
1: learning as a high school student in 1970 versus 2017. I mean, now they have YouTube, they have internet, they have PowerPoint, they have all these ideas and different ways to have a lesson plan, and you're catering to so many different types of learners. Whether it's a visual learner, whether it's someone who um, has a short attention, there's all these things to cater to what they need. And back then, it's like you had a textbook and a chalkboard, and if you didn't have, if you weren't sitting down paying attention, like you didn't succeed. You so had to like, find a way. You had to find figure out a way to to, to get it done, and you know, that's why you see guys like a, you know a Warren Buffett who had. Not great grades as a freshman in sophomore in high school, but ended up being Warren Buffett. But now, you know, he's probably, if he was in a different environment then, you know, he probably didn't have as bad of grades and he probably, you know, did everything he did sooner. It wasn't that strong. But it's a great story now if you hear it.
0: It's interesting. Prefer evaluations or descriptions? Descriptions. Prefer momentum or the moment? momentum liked or respected
1: respected why um what i so the question is would you rather be liked or respected yeah which yeah, do i you mean prefer? respected is, to me is more values liked is kind of subjective and oh he's a nice like respect is, has to do with values for me
0: transformational leadership or transactional Oh leadership? gosh, easy transformation. that like and i knew you were going to react that way and has that always been the case for you as a coach is that is that yeah. why you coach yeah absolutely that's the purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, love winning or hate losing? Love winning. Risk taker or rule follower? Rule follower. And maybe one of your weaknesses? Absolutely. Have Have you done anything to try to shift that? Um. No, I probably
1: could use a little help. What are you doing next week? <laughs> we'll get to it.
0: Uh Balance or specific obsession.
1: I'd strive for balance.
0: Strive for balance. Fear of failure or fearlessness?
1: A little of fear of failure. I would probably say more on that end.
0: I think that I think fear of failure gets a bad bad rap these days. And I think if we go to any commencement speech anywhere in the country, you know, in a, in a few months, they'll all say, "Don't be afraid to fail." And I understand the message that they're giving them, which is like, "Go be a risk taker. Yeah. Go do things. Go." out there. you got
1: to be able to compartmentalize it. you got to be able to have that thought of fear of failure but also, I'm the best or I can succeed. Like, I'm going to do it this way. you got to be able to balance, have 20%, 80% maybe.
0: And what I say is fear of failure when you're preparing yeah. and be fearless when you're performing. Absolutely. And, and so for me, like a lot of what I've come to realize in, in my space is that mindset for preparation is so different than the mindset for performance. Because if we don't have a fear of failure, we're not going to go see an instructor. We're not going to go Read a yeah. book about our mindset. We're not going to – we're going to eat that cheeseburger yeah, and fries yeah. and drink a beer. Like, yeah. we. why not? Like, we're not afraid. But when we step on that T at Q school or whatever it might be, like, yeah, we need a bit of fearlessness. Um, you know, and I think that that's – that push-pull and that dynamic is really important. Last one, disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. Easy one for you? Uh,
1: yeah. I, I mean, I was never – I don't. I'm never afraid to step into the ring. I think at the end of the day, like you, I wouldn't have taken that leap of faith to go to Tennessee. I wouldn't have taken that leap of faith to go play pro golf, or I wouldn't have taken that leap of faith to, uh, you know, you know, become a teacher. If I didn't have that,
0: you look at your stories along the way and how you are where you are now, and you have, you know, baseball not working out. So I'm gonna put all I've got into golf. Mm-hmm. Failure there. Um, or a shift there mm-hmm. that happens for you. You have Title IX coming, and you know you ask a lot of men in this country who were in college athletics, what do they think of Title IX? They're not going to say it's the best thing that ever happened. For you, it led to a shift to go experience a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go off to Tennessee, and you have guys who are better than you, but it leads to a shift maybe in how you focus and how you mm-hmm. think about the game. Uh, you go off and play pro, and you have a moment where you're like, you know what, this isn't going to work, mm-hmm. and you shift – Uh, and you end up, you know, doing some coaching and I know you also coached in college Mm -hmm. at Maryland and UVA. Um, so you have these shifts along the way where you had to take risks, Mm -hmm. And even though you think you're a rule follower, you took certain risks along the way that have worked out for you. Um, and so, you know, I know you're now at congressional and there's a shift that you had to take. I mean, yeah,
1: absolutely. Big shift. So,
0: so how do you think about shifting? and in your life and in those shifts I mean, I
1: there's somewhere deep down like with everyone that they know where they want to get to and i think i mean i i had to drive by congressional every day to go to work and somewhere in the back of my mind i knew like hey this is where i want to be i knew this is i want this is this is i knew i was going to be there so it felt familiar at some point so i think somewhere deep inside like there's a like you know what you want it's like hard to get there sometimes and navigate through but it You kind of know what you want. So that shift to me is just getting me closer to what I really, really deep down believe.
0: Well, I think for you also, you have this, you're like, I'm just going to work. And like your dad and like your mom's taught you, like, you know, just put the work in and we'll see. And I think people think about, I asked about balance and specific obsession earlier, but I think one of the things people mistake is that they think balance is always about inaction. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, sitting at home and doing nothing. And I think balance is about, no, like when I am with my family or with my girlfriend or boyfriend or significant other, like I'm with them. Mm -hmm. But then when I'm working, I'm I'm working. And I think that's where balance comes. And by the way, I can still be obsessed with what I'm doing at work and obsessed with my boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it might be. Um, But I think think it's just a, a good thing to remember is like a lot of good happens when we show up and we do good work. And I think a lot of times people think like, "Oh, what do I need to do? Who do I need to network with?" It's like, show up, develop relationships, yeah. do good work, and it'll come back. And, and that's kind and, of what
1: I—that's what I yeah. exactly what I say to myself when there's there is a day that you know, man, I don't, I, you know, I'm tired, or I want to just you show up and you go to work and you work hard, and, and that's kind of exactly kind of you look back at Cal Ripken or what would he do or what would what's your manifesto? You call it and live by that. Love it.
0: So why don't we end with that? Uh, John Scott, thank, thank you. you for having me. Uh thanks for coming in. This is fun for me, and I know I've got to know you over the years, and I've taken lessons from you. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that because that's not going to help your career <laughs> at all. But uh, I've appreciated our friendship, and yeah, me too. Uh, I and I know we share a lot of clients. So uh, I know you do a great job, and it's fun to just talk shop with you a yeah, little bit. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks to John Scott for coming on the podcast. I want to just unpack some of the stuff we talked about. First with the mantra that his parents passed on to him smart is what you get it's not who you are. And you heard John Scott and I touch on this idea of growth mindset which is something that's been become pretty mainstream and pretty popular and it stems from a book written by a woman named Carol Dweck who studied mindset for the last 30 40 years and her book is about these two types of mindsets one being a growth mindset which suggests that talent and intelligence are not set in stone. And then fixed mindset, which is the belief that talents and intelligence are what they are. So they can't really change. They can't really shift. And so what John Scott was talking about from a young age was valuing this concept of constant progression, constant growth. He also talked about, hey, don't try to get better. Try to challenge yourself every day. Because the word better is ambiguous. You wouldn't believe how many athletes I work with when I ask them, hey, did you get better today? They're like, yeah, I think I did. But they really lack the self-awareness to know if they did or they didn't, unless they're quantifying it. That's one of the reasons I talk to coaching staffs and teams about quantifying the preparation we're putting in. But to go back to the athlete or the client, if they can challenge themselves every day, if they can really say, this is what I did to challenge myself, and this is how I did it, there is room for improvement there, and there's tremendous room for improvement. So I think that's another big takeaway. I also think John Scott, learning from his failures... And having fearlessness to go for it and try to give it all he had to make it, but also recognize, you know what? It's time to quit. It's time to move in a different direction. And having that realization, I think, is something that we all struggle with at times, which is when do we keep going and when do we keep being gritty and when do we walk away? I think sometimes we don't value the walk away enough. And you look at what John Scott is doing now as a teacher. I think he was meant to teach, probably more so than meant to play. I think that's just such a valuable lesson for us all to learn is find what we're really, really good at. Not just what we're passionate about, but also something that can give us purpose and something that we can excel at. And John Scott is excelling as a teaching pro. He's at Congressional Country Club now, which is one of the most prestigious clubs in the country. And I know for a fact he works with some of the best young golfers in the country. So I'm going to leave you with that. Find that thing that you are passionate about that has purpose, but also something you can really excel at. Because there's no shame at some point in your life getting to a crossroads and saying, you know what? I don't think I'm going to really excel at this. Let me try to find something else that I can really excel at and I'm going to still bring that same work ethic, that same mindset that's helped get me to this place to that new thing that I want to work on. So with that, I want to leave you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond the Surface podcast. Thanks so much to John Scott Rattan for coming on the podcast. If you want to follow John Scott on Twitter, his handle is JSR061. If you want to find out more about John Scott, you can go to his website, jsrgolf.com. And if you want to take some lessons from John Scott, trust me, he, he knows what he's doing. If you're in the D.C. area, uh, feel free to contact him and, and he can get your swing as good as it possibly can be. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again real soon.